0: Welcome to the New
1: Books Network.
0: Hi, and welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm the host of the show. And today I'm thrilled to welcome a trio of scholars to this podcast Stephanie Wolf, Matthew Kane, and Tawiya Ansah have jointly edited the recent book, In the Shadow of Genocide Justice and Memory Within Rwanda, published in December of 2022 by Routledge. Uh, the the book—the book's a wide-ranging set of essays, uh, and and distinctively by a equally wide-ranging set of contributors uh, examining the experience, yes, and the aftermath of the genocide in Rwanda, uh, and and the breadth of contributions make it really distinctive in the field, and and I'm excited to get a chance to talk with them about it. So Matt, Stephanie, Talia, thanks for joining us, and welcome to New Books in Genocide Studies. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thank Please. you so
2: much. Yes.
0: So. I always start with asking the question that's supposed to be easy uh, and usually it is. And that's just can you say a little bit about yourselves, uh, about how you became interested in mass violence in Rwanda um, and how you came to write the book? And I'll just go in the order I see on the Zoom screen. So, Stephanie, why don't you start?
2: All right. Um, Thank you very much. Delighted to be here. Um, So. I uh, currently I teach at Weber State University. It's in Ogden, Utah, and my specialty is genocide, crimes against humanity, war crimes. Um, I'm in the political science department. And my interest really was um, my f- when I was in my Ph.D. program, I was looking at mass violence and what happens afterwards so that kind of transitional justice but i was interested in law memory politics why do some why do some um groups receive reparations and apologies and recognitions and memorials are built and why do similar groups receive nothing and so i looked at um you know i looked at germany in uh, World War II cases of Germany, the Holocaust, and Romani populations, the United States internments of Japanese American and Japanese Latin American. And then I also looked at um, the comfort women, specifically looking at um, the treatment of women from um, South Korea, and those from other surrounding countries like the Duchy Indies. And I was like, why, why are there do we hear about violence on some groups and we don't on others? Is it numbers? Is it, um, is it politics? What is that? And so I was really intrigued. And that's how I got started in the field. And then during um, when the ICTR was going on and we heard the uh, Tribunal for Rwanda, I started sort of following those cases. And I really, after I finished up my PhD work, I really went, I went to Rwanda to kind of see what was, you know, what was happening there and what people, um, you know, how are they rebuilding society? And it, the people were there were wonderful. And it was fascinating to see all the complexities in this small little country ongoing. And so I started returning every year just to explore the country, talk to people. And from there, my interest was, was born.
1: How about you? Um, yes, thank you very much for having for having me as well. Um, so I'm a, a professor of law at the Florida International uh, University College of Law, um, and I guess my interest really started um, um, after law school when I had an opportunity to join the United Nations Human Rights Mission to Rwanda a year after the genocide. So I'd been interning in Geneva and um I was invited to join the mission Uh, we went um for six months and um I was really uh very struck by, um, as uh, Stephanie pointed out, the complexity in this very small circumference. And at the same time, I was working on my PhD in literature, and my my interest really was in listening to the stories and how some stories found their way into the legal sort of framework, and some stories did not. Uh, how memorial. Works in the in the same vein, and how law itself is a kind of platform for memorializing certain kinds of events and certain and certain kinds of stories and and others not. So Rwanda, uh, not only was I very moved by by the people there and the and the uh, and the the sort of post trauma that a year afterwards was still very evident in the streets, but I was also uh, quite a sort of intrigued by how it tapped into so much of the deep sort of questions that we ask about our existence and our identities and our belonging and our community and and so on and so that's really it's uh, it's been an ongoing sort of um, engagement and passion uh, to 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 uh, sort of explore those questions. And so um, uh, a few years ago, um, uh, Stephanie invited me to present at a, a, a symposium yeah. on sort of mem- sort of what's happened. Twenty How is Rwanda sort of remembered 20 uh, odd years later? And um, and it's it was from that engagement and meeting. Uh, um, other sort of uh, Rwandan uh, scholars and 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 poets and novelists, um, as well as uh, sort of European and American and and, and Asian uh, scholars, that that this book was essentially uh, uh, sort of born. How
3: about you, Max? Yes, yeah, so I am both a practicing attorney and a teach a professor at the University of Oklahoma College of Law, and. I got interested in Rwanda thanks to a connection at the University of Oklahoma, a head of the political science department um, had a son who was named David Sheffer, who was the first ambassador at large for war crimes. And uh, David Sheffer would, go one day to negotiate with regards to the setting up of a tribunal, whether it was the ICTY or the ICTR or some other uh, tribunal or the international criminal court. And then, you know, the next week he would come home to visit his father and would come hang out at the law school. And so I thought it was incredibly fascinating to be able to interact with someone who was directly involved in those sorts of, efforts. And just to give him a plug, about a decade ago now, he published a book called All the Missing Souls, which is his um, own uh, memoir regarding those activities. And so contemporaneously, again, with him actually carrying those out, he would come and visit with us. And I just thought, you know, the opportunity to be involved in this new world of uh, attempts at justice and, you know, addressing these kinds of atrocities around the world was something that just fascinating me. And so I was able to spend time at the International Tribunal Tribunal for Rwanda, and then also be involved in some of the early preparatory committee, preparatory commission, assembly of states parties for the ICC. And it just continued from there.
0: I'll keep with you because you wrote the
3: introduction, but
0: but everyone can pitch in. So I wonder, this is always the challenge with with deciding who to invite to contribute to a set of essays and what, what Shape you want a set of essays to to take. So how did this book come about? and and what were the themes that you imagined would would be the core of these these essays?
3: Yeah, I think the idea was always to one, have an incredibly diverse group of individuals engage in this. There's plenty out there that touches on one aspect or another of genocide generally and more particularly to the genocide in Rwanda. But at the same time, there are vast perspectives that have remained untouched in a lot of that literature. And to be able to have an opportunity to bring together those with such extraordinarily backgrounds and to be able to have the opportunity for them not only to present, but also to uh, you know interact with one another and to respond to one another's positions and to develop these you know different approaches and different uh, opportunities was really exciting as well as again to hear a lot of the voices from rwanda itself that otherwise would be lost forever Um, i mean this is just a you know it's a book it's a piece of paper but at the same time it's a recording of you know perspectives that otherwise could be lost forever And so when we had the opportunity to do this, and again, I give Stephanie full credit because this was her brainchild and um, she initiated it all. But we had this really unique opportunity that, again, seemed like there was a lot of room for exploration. And over the development of the course of the book, there were authors who had originally you know been interested that we or they for one reason or other uh, it didn't work um we also introduced a couple of additional authors who had very unique uh, perspectives that were different as well and ultimately we came up with a project that i think we're all very proud of and all think that it it means more than just uh you know these pieces of paper because it does really give an opportunity for those whose voices otherwise wouldn't be heard to have a chance to set it down for the record
2: i would say about half of the authors were at a conference that we had at weber state university um, for the 20th anniversary so that's where we met some of the initial connections um, and because it, it was just that as um as was mentioned it was that how do we remember at the 20 year mark? And so we started talking would this would be a great book and we need to be interdisciplinary. So we had lots of conversations about how, you know, about who we should invite and how this should be developed. And we purposely chose, you know, to have a very good proportionality in our book. Um, I believe the end result was about at least 50%, you know, uh, gender parity, you um, in the book with 25% from the Global South um, and a substantial number of the Global South authors being from Rwanda itself to really try to get that representation and not to not overlook the voices of the very area we're exploring. Yeah, one of the chapters
0: in it, and I apologize if if I'm not pronouncing the name correctly, but MJ Regema maybe, um, is insistent about the need to... Um, To have Rwandans tell the story. And I think by implication, although she doesn't say that, to go beyond Rwandans to talk about people from the global south. Um, And I wonder why that particular chapter was important to you as you came, uh, as you started to talk, uh, think through that book and put these essays together.
2: Um, So I I can start on that one. Um, So I met MJ. At a conference at the International Association of Genocide Scho- uh, Scholars Conference in um, Cambodia in 2019. And we were f- getting very close to finalizing the book at that point. And I went to her presentation, and she was pointing out that she was the only Rwandan there talking, even though there were so many different r- panels on Rwanda, including my own and i thought her presentation was just brilliant and so literally after the presentation i walked up to her and i'm like i I think i need to include this in the book would you please would you please um, let me have this chapter and include this because to me this is the point that i always i always see in my work as i do a lot of work in human rights and social justice um is that we talk a lot about areas, but we don't have the voices included in uh, of those who we were talking about. And so I really thought it was important. And her, the way she worded it and her presentation was just very powerful. And I was like, if if half of that power of her presentation was reflected in her uh, chapter, then I was like, I, I definitely want this because this, this has said it better than I ever could. And so I asked her and she was very willing to turn, you know, to polish the chapter up and submit it um, and link it to our themes. And so I sent it to... Uh, you know, to my other two co-editors. And I'm like, I want this, please, yeah. <laughs> you know. And they they graciously agreed that it was an important uh, contribution.
1: I, I would just venture to add that um, uh, I think sort of at the periphery of 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 most of the the the, the 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 narratives in the book is this idea of denialism which seems to sort of sort of always trail behind any kind of mass atrocity right or any kind of genocide specifically and i think the inclusion of mj's piece really cuts to a certain kind of core with respect to you know what what denialism, how it affects real people, you know, living their lives post, you know, post trauma. And um, so I thought that that also lent a certain kind of power to that particular inclusion.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask you. So I was struck by the decision to have Linda Melvern write the introduction. And so for those listeners who are not familiar, first, how can you say just a little bit about what you mean by denialism? uh, And then say maybe more about Maybe expand on how that has influenced the authors or the, the the structures of these essays or the subjects of these essays.
1: So, I mean, so I think that it's it's one thing to sort of have a flat-footed it didn't happen. It's another thing to, to sort of sort of, you know, memory is febrile and humans are fallible and so on and so forth. And so in little, little ways to chip away at the through veracity or the depth or the severity or the extremities, you know, um, for, you know, those familiar with Holocaust studies, there was a whole movement in at in, in a certain period where, you know, scholars, well-qualified scholars were sort of querying at the edges, you know, the historical strike uh, movement, um, whether in fact, who was culpable, who did what, that sort of thing. And so there's always this, this it's sort of two impulses right on the one hand you want a a kind of assertive truth that is definitive and done right but memory just doesn't work that way and that's why i think these 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 inclusions are so the the chapters are so interesting right um and so it's working always against the impulse to to deny the impulse to forget and so i I, so 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 i'm not I, i wouldn't speak directly to the the chapter on denial but i think all of the chapters are sort of pushing against you know In the context of reparation of sort of repair reparative justice or transitional justice, pushing against the natural tendency to just forget, you know, Um, and and it's a it's a fine line between that and simply denying that it happened at all. Um, And so, as Matt was saying about, you know, sort of. Sort of inscribing voices that would otherwise never be heard. That's part of the enterprise in never forgetting, essentially, and always being able to have some record, have some kind of real sort of um sort of um uh sort of um uh, uh, frame within which to see these 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 events that are really difficult to see, you know. Um and uh, in my in, in terms of the sort of um, the work that I was doing uh, in in my chapter, okay. it's what I'm what I was struggling with, with is um, you know how um, very often the effort to see involves a kind of construction if you like a reconstruction and how and how that involves a certain kind of artifice right and without that you, you whatever you're looking at has no meaning right and so the sort of the so you've got these various kind of vectors the push against um sort of actually seeing uh, because we have just we sort of want to forget we can't see the difficult thing as well as sort of recreating it in a way that isn't artificial, but uses artifice in order to make it more real. These are very, very sort of complicated things. And so so that's why I thought it was a book like this that includes people who were there, who experienced it, who have lived after the trauma, as well as people who are completely on the outside, visitors, outsiders like myself, who have some kind of engagement, these voices speaking to each other create more of a kind of a
3: very similar experience.
1: That that was my my
3: impression anyway. Yeah, one of the things we run into, and I think this touches exactly on, on what we're talking about now, is the idea of narratives. Yeah. And we have lots of different narratives that come about, some of which maybe you know, totally, I don't want to call them innocent, but they're done for very valid purposes, for very important reasons. There's other narratives that may be driven by some level of self-interest or some political uh, reason. One of the things about this book is that we, I think, you know, kind of intentionally or at least fell into the idea that we weren't trying to push a single narrative here. We weren't trying to construct our own narrative in this book. And that, you know, can be challenging from somebody on the ins- on the outside looking at saying, well, this is a collection of essays. Shouldn't it be all very thematic and saying the exact same thing? Well, no, the point, the big point of this is to not have that. And a big point of it is to allow for those that really were genuinely, you know, affected by the genocide. And, you know, we're talking at the first level about those that were victims or family members or uh, people that now, you know, you know, even decades later, are still feeling the effects because they live there. But it's also, it is as well, those that have studied and those that have uh, worked towards memorializing in these types of issues. So, again, the goal here was not to construct a narrative, but to provide a variety of approaches and a variety of thoughts on this in the sense that you could have perhaps more of a raw and real Um, feel to it than you might have if everything was, you know, neatly put together. Anytime that we as, you know, humans construct a theory, we're immediately disregarding stuff that we don't think fits into that theory. And so, um, again, that's not a negative, it's it's what we all do. But here we are, you know, we're able to present these various approaches, various thoughts, various, you know, uh, academic backgrounds, all these different things in order to kind of provide a, a new flavor in a historical record that wasn't already there
2: I would say you know when we we chose the um the authors it, you know it was you know a lot of it was looking for interdisciplinary approaches you know where you know who haven't we heard from yet um you know who are the experts in the field but also who's who's been to rwanda um who who is who's been there who's been on the ground conducting the research um interviewing people um and so having that firsthand experience i think was very important um for the authors um for like the, for the western authors to um to have been there to to um really know what they're speaking about and you know it was it was really interesting putting together um you know because we we have obviously we have lawyers and we have poets and we have photographers and film you know scholars and really trying that was actually a real struggle because they're like we want one kind of system we're like but we are we are so interdisciplinary because all of these perspectives get overlooked that we really wanted like we want people who know rwanda so they they need to have been there but other than that you know, we value diversity in um, disciplines. We didn't want the book that's only from one perspective. We want to see how these perspectives come together, and what can they what can they um, tell each other? What can they bring about? So, so well, let's talk
0: a little bit more about that, um, and, and maybe we'll start with um, with this question of justice. Uh, and I wonder, um, and Matt, you're uh, you teach in a law school. Can you say something about how you are defining, or the three of you, or the set of you, how are you defining justice in this book?
3: I, mean, I think that is a fundamentally challenging question. And we call, you know, I do work on language in the law, and justice is can be referred to as a contestable term, or it can be referred to in a slightly different view as an extravagantly vague term. Mm-hmm. And so, justice may very well mean one thing in the legal context and a completely different thing in the, you know, uh, in more of a, you know, community context. And so, again, when we talk about the idea that we weren't trying to box anyone in and weren't trying to have a specific view, I think that our approach to justice was fairly. like a common vocabulary usage of it not a technical usage of it and you know maybe at at the most base level it's about you know finding a way to right the wrong and so again when we were talking about it in the book there's certainly different sections on different things including you know the word justice utilized in more of the legal context and about how it could be effectuated and carried out, but there's not a huge amount here on specifically the uh, the legal mechanisms per se. This is much more, at least in my view, my you know, co-editors could disagree. This is much more about that, righting a wrong from a, an individual's perspective and how do we find a way to address this? And in some ways it can be the formal justice system, but in other ways, it can be very much more of a individualized process of how the individual recognizes the best way for this wrong to be righted. Now, of course, part of the challenge with any mass atrocity like this is that there is really no way to ever have justice in the sense that all the wrongdoers pay the appropriate price for all the wrong things that they have done. So part of what we're talking about is, you know, what is the best that we can do to get the closest that we can to some sort of semblance of justice? Because there's never going to be an absolute way to resolve this. And that's why we have things like the Clinton apology and other uh, after the fact efforts to sort of address and say, yeah, we screwed this up. You know, we met, we did, we, we could have done more. Um, General Dallaire, obviously it tore his life apart because he was on the ground when this was happening. And he thought, man, with just a little bit of help here, I can stop this. And he didn't get it. He was told to do the opposite. And so there will never be justice in the sense of fully righting the wrongness that recurred in Rwanda, nor is there in many other, uh, virtually any other mass atrocity scenario. But here, again, I think that we are talking about both primarily this i general idea the general common understanding of what a lay person would think as is justice but as part of that we also do get more into the legal approaches which are trying to find and convict those wrongdoers and give them some sort of appropriate penalty for what they've done i think um i would, I, I i think
1: um pursuant to that idea of justice you have justice from the point of view of the storyteller, the poet, the scholar, the photographer, the artist. I mean, I remember even a a year after the genocide, being in in Rwanda, already there were these efforts, you know, apart from the legal system, of trying to create some kind of justice in the the aftermath, right? artists there was a quite a kind of uh, an effort in getting these um sculptures you know they have these I, I remember walking on the street and there were these sculptures that all had these gashes across their wide forehead and this was a kind of testament to what had just happened you know like this these were sort of physical objects that as tempted to say, look, look at us, look at what happened to us. This is an artifact of what has happened, you know? And I think that's an effort, just as this book from these various points of view is an effort to effectuate or to realize some idea of justice or ideal of justice.
3: Yeah, along those lines, uh, the, you know, post genocide, the number that's usually thrown around is that there was something like 50 lawyers that survived in the entire country the legal justice system was completely destroyed. It didn't exist any longer. And so at least in those early years, there had to be some kind of alternative for those people that wanted to express, you know, the need for justice and some sense of it. And so obviously like uh, we are talking about you turn to other mechanisms in order to do that because the legal justice system just isn't there. And again, once it gets there, it won't have the capacity. And so the book also talks about not only the ICTR, but the national courts to some degree. And then the Gachacha, which was used to, you know, as a a different mechanism to resolve it, which we can talk about as time allows. And,
0: and for listeners, we've got a number of um a number of interviews with authors that, that this book cites about the gachacha system. So I will direct you to the website or or to your podcast provider where you can go listen to those. Uh, Tawai, you, you talk about symbolic justice in some sense, the effort to remember as a kind of justice. So I wonder if you could tell us uh, broadly, since many people have not had the chance to be there, about the Kigali Genocide Memorial, and then what you found interesting about it and, and talk about in your chapter.
1: All right. So first of all, uh, the caveat is that I didn't actually go to the memorial site Mm -hmm. itself, right? Um, I went to the memorial site virtually, right? I visited it online, I did uh, a a bunch of research on it. But um, I was motivated to talk about the, that particular genocide, because it's the sort of predominant or the, the the monument that the government has through which the government has articulated or the state of Rwanda has articulated its memory of the genocide, and so my chapter was sort of talking about that sort of enterprise, right? Or well, that project, the state project of memorializing and how effective it is, how successful it is, what it, what it brings up, what it does in terms of how, you know, individuals visiting or not the, the particular uh, memorial will remember these events, right? And so I was using that. And because I I had been to some memorial sites when I was there 20 years before, i had some context within which to compare sort of these almost ad hoc memorial sites back in t- 1995 and this more elaborate established well funded memorial uh, and in the state uh, but from through the state of uh, of Rwanda and so um so it was that sort of lens through which i was looking at the Kigali memorial site itself and what it, and what, what i found intriguing was that it spoke to um the, the layered and com- and the complex and the variegated nature of any kind of memorial, even the most simple memorial, can be sort of seen through not only different lenses, so I look at it through film and art and, and literature and so on and so forth, but also, and through law as well, but also how any attempt to memorialize implicates all of these other areas of, of one's lived existence right or lived reality so that i found really fascinating and and so i focused on sort of right outside the memorial site the uh the sort of the open the the, the graves that kind of had this aspect of being open because they had latticed windows on them so, but they weren't really open and when you looked in you didn't see any any bodies you only saw coffins and they were covered and so this kind of it had a kind of metaphoric layering to it that I thought I thought really fascinating about what the state was actually doing, um, because the narrative that the state was 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 telling the world, if you like, about Rwanda was one that the world could listen to and see because it was acquainted with the Holocaust and other big um, sort of uh, genocidal events in the past, but also one that was in some ways recharacterizing and recasting the story of Rwanda itself right and so I found that quite intriguing because um because any kind of memorial is both a sort of uh, a memorial in terms of a, a certain narrative or a story but it's also a political act and I wanted to unpack or at least to glimpse at what it was was saying politically in, in this memorial. So that's essentially what I was sort of looking at. And so when, when when you suggest that it's an example of symbolic justice, I think absolutely correct, right? And the importance of symbolic justice is that um, it, it you know, it sort of touches on everything we've just said about justice, right? As well as to say that you may not actually have real justice but is symbolic justice going to be enough? Is it going to speak to your your craving and desire for justice? In some sense, yes, in some sense, no. It's always going to be something uh, it may be even more important than actually having um, a real sort of um, um, uh, a, re- a real remedy for the loss that you've experienced. Um, so those are I found really interesting questions, and 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 the reason I thought that the Kigali memorial spoke spoke volumes, quite frankly, yeah, as a visual, uh, as a kind of a political act and as a kind of symbolic uh, a gesture to the future with respect to what had happened in 1994. Mm-hmm.
2: And I think one of the, uh, and as someone who, who has been a dozen times to Kigali genocide memorial, I really enjoyed reading, um, the, re, re, you know, when, when I first heard and read the chapter on the uh, Kigali genocide memorial, I think it really, you know, it was an amazing, you know, discussion, recollection, you know, of bringing those visuals, um, to bear. But I have to say when, um, when we're talking like symbolic and historical justice. I did um write a book that was published in 2014, The Politics of Reparations and Apologies, where I discussed five different types of justice and I did send that out to the authors as something they could refer to if they wanted to under you know kind of how I how I was conceiving symbolic and historical justice, but that they didn't have to because I wasn't constraining that. It was like if you would like more information here, um if you don't um we we let but the authors have a wide, you know, wide range. It's how they wanted to interpret justice. But I think that symbolic justice was very important because that may be, you know, some people are very far away from the international criminal tripping over Rwanda. You know, they may not, they may not be there, they may not see some of these uh, larger trials, but this way they can feel seen in the memorials. Um, that memorials are often can be considered to be their home um, from interviews I've done at these places and so i think the symbolic justice and the memorials are, are very important to tell the story of um rwanda and so i think we really focused on symbolic justice um, and historical justice in, in a lot of these chapters um as kind of like a key component of what is justice with of course the with of course our legal justices being defined in uh, one of our early chapters as well and one of the things
0: that I found interesting about these chapters was, and I don't remember honestly the, the, the word, maybe reparative or restorative justice, but the way in which there's a concentration or the way in which the chapters make visible the work of civil society organizations that are trying to provide people a way to overcome trauma or to... Uh, meet economic challenges, or I, I wonder. And I'll just start, I guess, with Stephanie. Can you can you say a little bit about the the kinds of organizations that show up in these chapters and the kind of work they do?
2: I I've worked since twenty. Eleven with an organization called Never Again Rwanda. When I said I work, I'm not actually you know I don't work for them or with them, but I bring um, I'll do I'll bring students from the United States to Never Again Rwanda to have those students participate in a peace building institute. So I have visited many times and got to know. They would often have guest speakers from organizations come in and or people from the university, people from the Justice Department and speak so when i was observing uh, when i was observing the peace building institute to you know ensure that you know what could, you know what my students were hearing and so i'd be able very familiar with it so i could recommend it um, i got to know a lot of people from various institutions and so when we were specifically looking for the rwandan scholars that's what I, you know i reached out to some of these that i knew were in the field and <coughs> so never like in rwanda um and some other organizations that have um are really doing a lot of you know that peace building work there on the ground um a, a lot of them work heavily with the youth and what uh, what they have told me before is that the youth is where the country you know is the future of the country of course and so having the youth understand um the complexities of what happened how they got there um really would then change the you know would change the future and so until we teach them critical thinking is one of the things that these um that like never again rwanda um was mentioning in these as critical thinking um peace building how do we how do we as the youth really build upon that and so they, they did talk about a lot of like restoration and restorative justice. I remember, you know, at Never Again Rwanda, we, they did a, a field trip and they went to a village where perpetrators and survivors were living right next to each other. And the survivor was literally would stand up and be like, this person behind me is helping me rebuild my house. And he killed my husband, you know, he killed my husband. And having these kind of experiences, you know, and they, they talk about this as this is what they have to do to restore the country because they can't leave. You know, they can't leave, they can't move, um, that they have to work and live side by side. So what do they need to do to restore these relationships? What do they have to do to restore the country? And so really, um, their words were inspiring, which is why I reached out to some of the civil societies and like, would you like to contribute? Um, And also led me to reach out to youth poets, poets. and uh, for that la- for that last chapter, because I had, you know, when I was discussing these youth with these youth in the Peace Building Institute, a lot of them were like, this is how I can express myself. I write poetry. I draw. I sing. I perform in, in, in plays and in troops. And I was like, how do I get this to the people at home, basically? And so that's why we included um, not only those civil society organizations, because these are the people on the ground doing the work but also these youth who are brilliant, who are writing the, what they're feeling and what they're experiencing.
0: Yeah, the poetry was really compelling. And there's
2: a there's a focus on
0: children in this volume that doesn't show up everywhere, but is what is threaded throughout the volume. I wonder what what that taught you, whether about the experience of children or about the way in which academics approach the study of children's experiences. Um, what 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 did you learn from this process about working with children and trauma and mass violence
2: excellent question Um, (laughs) a lot of our um, so when we interviewed when I interviewed everyone for for my chapter um, you know I, I didn't start with the beginning of the idea of I was these are child narratives but then as I'm reading and reflecting and researching this, I realized that everyone was, you know, everyone is talking about their school experiences. And so the people that I, that I just, I had found to interview were all child survivors, you know, that they all had that youth experience. And so I really, you know, I I reworked that um, just to highlight that because I thought that was important. And it connected with um, Musa's chapter, which um, you know he worked with the digitizing the child narratives um, and we had another chapter that was incredible um that that ended up that could not fit just due to the amount of space we had um, who was actually went on to publish a book though on the subject, uh, Justine Barrett, on youth perpetrators. And so, so we actually had even more youth included. Um, And so I highly recommend that book for anyone listening Um, that it was, you know, and so I think the theme was just that people forget that so many of the survivors, that so many of the children were so impacted by the genocide, either, you know, I didn't even choose to interview all child survivors, but that's just what happened because so many of the youth, and so many who are willing to speak out, child survivors, child perpetrators, um, even the chi- children who were bystanders saw the genocide. Mm-hmm. And so there's so much of this, um, and that kind of ties into the, a little bit to the title is so many of the youth then are growing up in the shadow of genocide. Mm-hmm. What does this mean then for the country? And so I don't think we have any conclusions, but we just wanted to really on this over, you know, this kind of overarching theme of This is generational trauma. This is even what, you know, as the survivors have started to die out too, this is why the Kigali Genocide Memorial is going to be important for the future. This is why digitizing those um, uh, things are uh, so important. Why reflections of literature and film are so important, because this is what the future generations are going to be exposed to be remember um, the generational narrative and trauma through the, um, through hearing their family stories, but also how it's expressed in concrete items. So once the parents pass away, they'll have the memorials, the films, the narratives, the books, but this is what's going to shape that future.
3: Rwanda, you know, this, the 94 genocide was obviously the most egregious, you know, Act in the history of Rwanda. However, it was far from the only time that there was such violence in and around Rwanda involving the Hutu and the Tutsi. And so there's been a lot of discussion about the cycles of violence and how, you know, how can we make this genocide the last genocide? And so I think that this focus on youth is critical in the sense that we don't want to see in another 10 years this happen all over again. Will it happen on the scale again? No. But does it still, or we hope not again, uh, it's unlikely that it will happen on the scale again, but we still see the same kind of violence, whether it's in Rwanda or Burundi or the Eastern Congo or Southern Uganda. All these countries have spillover effect from this conflict, this generational conflict between the Hutu and the Tutsi. And so the idea, I think, and not ours per se, but the idea with all these organizations that work with these children is this, again, critical thinking, this idea that you say it doesn't have to be this way. We don't need to see this go again. There is no benefit to anybody when this happens over and over and over again. So the idea that we have, you know, people that either were children at, at the time of the genocide, or people that are now the next generation after the genocide, and because of the population shift in Rwanda, it's more and more of that new generation now that wasn't even born during uh, when the genocide occurred, but is certainly feeling the, you know, aftershocks to this day. Uh, it, Can't be overly emphasized how important it is for those individuals to be able to understand what happened and to think about how they can avoid it in the future.
0: We obviously don't have enough time to talk about all of the essays. We're on a little bit of a short timetable, but but I would invite each of you, and, and Matt, we'll start with you. Is there a theme or a subject or an insight you had that you'd like to highlight that we hadn't talked about?
3: I mean, I think we've covered a lot of it. One thing that I do think is uh imperative, and again, as part of the book, but it goes beyond that. Is this idea of the you know primary narratives not inherently being the only or best or you know even the most accurate narratives that there are? And so, to me, one of the parts of this project and even other work that I've done, where I've examined uh, the role or what. What the U.S. courts have done in dealing with cases that involve the genocide in Rwanda, it, it, there are these vastly different perspectives out there. So, in a U.S. case, you might have someone who's trying to avoid deportation. You might have someone who was accused of a uh, genocide, more often participating in genocide, more often. It's someone who, you know, has come to the United States under false pretenses, and the United States has decided they want to remove that person but they charge them for immigration fraud as opposed to actual participation in the genocide. And you get to see these really diverse perspectives from all these other places that you might not necessarily go to in order to get a view of what happened in Rwanda. And so whether it's, again, one of the edited works here or whether it is something that you might run into in a different publication somewhere else, I would just encourage people to explore the diversity of perspectives that are there and not to simply you know, read the first book that you pick up and decide that that's absolutely what happened or that's how it happened or that that's why we are where we are. Instead, dig deeper, recognize that each person affected by the genocide has their own story and their own perspective. And their own recollection and their memory of what occurred and that to me is a way that we can personalize these things to recognize that we are all part of one human race and that you know we go against what happened in rwanda where you know there were attempts to call, you know label tootsie as less than human as cockroaches as, as a, something different if we can individualize it's a hard, whole lot better and part of that is individualizing you know the story of what occurred to individuals and how they were affected by the genocide in rwanda which again is what we've really tried to capture
1: here what about you yes um i think i i would say i mean I, i think matt said it very well i think the i think the the variety and the and the complexity of the perspectives is really the key issue and um and not coming away with just one sort of uh, sort of prism through which to see any huge event such as the uh, uh, the genocide in, in Rwanda. But I I completely agree with what he was saying about sort of humanizing the events. Um that's a form of justice itself, so that this doesn't happen again, so that it, you know, so that we have a kind of collective memory of how how bad things got for all of us. That that's somebody would reduce another human being like this and we see it you know in our you know when you know these mass shootings it's it's an instance of the dehumanization that precipitates a violent event you know and 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 so I think um um I I'm I, I really you know sort of I think that's one of the richness the rich uh elements of this book that you get to see a singular event as very complex in terms of the different perspectives and that really makes it more lived and more human and therefore um um uh, and more urgent that we all sort of um sort of have a a, a sort of uh, that it enters the collective memory in some sense and it doesn't happen like that again Stephanie?
2: i would say <laughs> If I had a recommendation, I, I would or if someone who is picking up and they only have time for one chapter, turn to the chapter they know the least about, because what was the most pleasurable for me on working about this group w- with this group of authors is I had not stopped to think of um, how photography is, is impacted by the genocide or the different elements of the movies and how uh, the films and how they contrast. So. We often, as, as academics and scholars, we get so so constrained by our field. We're reading, you know, we do take the time to read all the books in our field, but we don't stop to think of the the artistic elements that may be reflective or to stop and read the narratives of children who are in the genocide. And so I would say, really, all the all the chapters are wonderful and they're important, but stop to read what you know the least about, because that's perspective prob- that someone needs the most.
0: I was going to say, I have to imagine the responses on people's face on your tenure committee, should you not have tenure already, although you might, as they read that you, uh, as a political scientist, edited a compilation of children's poetry, which I think was wonderful, but it's not always prioritized in the discipline. Um so I know we're about out of time. Um, so I just have one question that I always end with. Uh, and Matt, I'll start with you. Is there a, and I'll go around again, <clears throat> is there a, a book or a piece of art or a movie or whatever it is that you would recommend to the audience that
3: that you
0: think is worth um, reading or, or watching or, or viewing?
3: Sure, well, I already made one plug uh, for Ambassador Shepard's uh-huh. book early on, and I think that's a fascinating, read if you have the opportunity to do so another really interesting one and i quoted at the end of the book uh, or at the end of my chapter is by andre sibomana it's called hope for rwanda conversations with uh, a couple of other folks and it was published in 1999 and to just give you a little taste of that and i think it also kind of wraps up a lot of our i think our collective thoughts about this volume Um, He writes just, you know, again, we're talking about five years after the genocide is when this is published. Our country has just lived through one of the most tragic pages in its history. The ordeal was not necessary. We could have made other choices and human lives could have been spared. Large numbers of people were killed. Justice must search for those who are guilty and try them. Survivors must preserve the memory of this tragedy and learn the lessons for the future. The failure to take on the consequences of our past would amount to killing for a second time those whose life have already been stolen. So, you know, a a fantastic read from someone who was there and and really had a lot of insight into things, but very much what we are trying to accomplish in this book. We've talked about justice from the legal sense, which he's obviously contemplating in this passage, but also that desire to remember and to hopefully use that as a way to break the cycle of violence that's been going on for decades in in and around Rwanda.
1: What about you, Talia? Do you have a recommendation? I do. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The the book I would recommend um, that was very inspiring for me is called Hiroshima by John Hersey. It Mm. was first published in 1946, and the author went to... um, To Japan right after the uh, atomic bombs were were dropped and he interviewed the survivors so this is very very shortly after and what I what I was inspired by in terms of this book is the you know sort of it's so close to the ground in terms of the, the 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 lived reality of these survivors and what they saw and how they experienced it but I'm also very intrigued by how readable the story is because he uses a lot of sort of fictive um, sort of elements in order to create um, the, the the sort of the palpable feeling that you're there with him at, as he's interviewing these people, and it really sort of made me think about how memory works and how you know this is one form of memorializing, um, and um, and and I uh, and and so I I, I thought it. For for its literary value and its reader, readerly quality, I would recommend it. But just as thinking about events like genocide, I think uh, that that's that's certainly what inspired me, and I would recommend that for anyone as well. Oh, it's definitely.
2: Um, So I have to be a little bit different, uh, as always. Um, So I work with a lot of students, and so I'm always looking for things that really speak to them. And so I'm going to recommend two poets, Mm -hmm. Hakeem Bellamy and Clint Smith, are fantastic social justice poets, uh, American poets, who... Poetry is very moving and speak about the modern uh, events of our time. And so if people only have a few minutes, pick up these authors and read their poetry because it's very moving. And it really makes you think and reflect at some of these core issues um, that you find in any society that has to deal with the aftermath of racism and atrocities and um, actions that, um, that are unspeakable.
0: We've been talking with the editors of the book, In the Shadow of Genocide, uh, part of the Routledge Studies in Genocide and Crimes Against Humanity series. Um, Stephanie and Matt and Tawia, thanks so much for joining us. And I hope uh, the next time you uh, publish something on the field that you'll be willing to come back and talk about it with us.
2: Of course.
1: Thank you you. very much. All right, bye-bye.